0: All right, second coming of Christ. We are at the top of your sheet, Second Peter three, verse ten. Cameron, can you read that for us, nice and loud? Yeah. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. and the heavens will pass away with the Lord, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved,
1: and the earth the works that are done
0: on it will be exposed. Mm-hmm. So the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Pretty, this lines up well with our uh, Revelation series that we're in. We're kind of seeing this morning, Revelation 22, in our worship service, uh, that kind of final scene or around the throne, uh, throne of God and of the Lamb. Um, main idea, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ incites the Christian's joy, holiness, and eager expectation for the return of the King and the rescue of his people. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ incites the Christian's joy, holiness, and eager expectation for the return of the king and the rescue of his people. As, we, uh, as the, the first point there says, why study the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, I think maybe it'd just be helpful just to look at that main idea. Uh, there's three things that are said right there that, that this doctrine incites joy, number one, holiness, number two, and eager expectation, number three. Um, what thoughts do you guys have on, on the, the first one of those? Why would the, the second coming of Christ incite joy? It's
2: really interesting because the very next verse, verse 11 after verse 10, the one that the camera says since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and it's just, I've always, yeah, I thought it was fascinating about to tell us what we're going to do with that, and he doesn't say, give up all hope or what you do doesn't matter.
0: You know, there's a, uh, and, and everybody, people have different views on, kind of, you know, I think some people get a lot of flack for uh, a, an end times theology that that says, uh, hey, everything's going to burn up, and so I've heard a, a charge leveled against people that that kind of take this verse, Second Peter three, and and they say, well, if you believe that, then you won't live. You won't live rightly now because you just whether that's creation care or whether that's uh, your your interaction with other people made in the image of God that you'll you'll be negligent in some way. Uh, if if you think everything's going to burn up, you'll you'll kind of live with an abandon now in a sense of recklessly not really caring about those kinds of things. So you're um, saying that doesn't have the to be true. Right. Yep. So what would what would the logic be then? the connection between caring about things now and having a healthy view of the second coming of Christ Anybody?
1: still Matters because you are coming before my throne, I'm going to evaluate your life. Yeah. So God's not, God doesn't see it as an
0: excuse. Sure. To not do these.
1: He said, and like, that's why I think Pierce, well, he like, moved in about earlier, like, we need to live lives of holiness and values, and out of that, and especially in light
0: of our works being exposed right. before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've always thought it curious that. Like that, that charge, it seems weird to me because let's just take creation care for an example. So the logic is, well, if you, if you don't think this tree is going to make it into eternity, you won't care about it. Like that, that doesn't make sense. Like I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to think that this thing's literally going to make it into eternity for me to care about it. I mean, care about it because God created it. And you wanna care, you wanna, you know, you care for God's creation, you, you want to love, uh, other image bearers, because that's a good thing that God calls you to do, regardless of how all this stuff's going to shift out in time. So it, it seems kind of a, kind of a weird, to me, a weird charge for people to bring. Anyway, yep. Yeah, the question was how, how do we think about our physical bodies then? Um, so I, I think there's, uh, I think for our own, there, there are other things about our own physical fitness uh, that are helpful for us thinking, you know, even the way that, um, you, know, stewarding, you know, stewarding your body, stewarding, you know, the, the body that God's given you, Um, isn't just for, isn't just for looks, it isn't just for vanity, but it's also like, you know, um, proper nutrition, proper diet, those kinds of things actually um, can enhance our ability to, to worship the Lord, to focus on, on truth, to, um, to, to, to engage in good works that God's put before us. And so, so can you step over a line? Yeah, sure, you can always step over a line. Um, and anything, I guess. So so you can get you can get too consumed with that, especially if you sense pride starting to come in or um it's all about vanity, but there's a there's a good um stewarding of of the bodies that God have, has given us in a in a worshipful way that I think's good. You worried about going too far in your own physical fitness? Is that was that what you asked? <laughs> Brophy, welcome come on man we're, we're 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 just in point number one uh so for the audio people this is exactly how we planned it we're tag teaming midway through point number one we were just talking about uh you know given second peter three ten. 10 how do you think about that with reference to engaging in good works creation care um loving other image bearers. Nathan brought up a thing about physical fitness. You know. I was
3: curious how you got to physical yeah, fitness. Yeah, I was wondering. <laughs> From the second coming of Christ. <laughs> you know. yeah. I was a, ready to roll with it. It's a circuitous <laughs> route that we took there. Well, sorry I'm late, everyone. For some reason, I thought this started at 9 or 9.10, but that was incorrect. Uh, so that's on me. Apologies. Alright, so Jason, if I can indulge you, you stopped at Yeah, we were we were just we were actually just thinking through the uh, the main idea. Uh, we were ta- I was tying the, we were tying together the why well, study the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Yep. And connecting that to your main idea of joy, holiness, eager expectation. Got it. So we were just kind of thinking through that a Okay, bit cool. Um, did you pray? I did. Alright. Well then I'm gonna assume that the Lord heard us. <laughs> and it will bless my meager and tardy efforts. Um, yeah, so I'll start with, I'll, I'll just wrap up uh, why study the doctrine of the second coming of Christ um, and walk through these points slowly. Um, not slowly, uh, rapidly, since I'm late. Um, so the first point under why study the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is that scripture places a heavy emphasis on this doctrine. Um, and so we see this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, um, you know, the, the forerunner to the second coming of Christ uh, is the day of the Lord, um, which the Old Testament prophets refer to uh, over that exact phrase over two dozen times, and similar phrases like it over 200, and so they emphasize this point Again and again, the prophets point to days where God would bring judgment to foreign nations like Babylon and Egypt, in places like Jeremiah 50 and Ezekiel 32, uh, or Israel, where we see in places like Amos and others as well. Um, and these days of judgment do come to pass, right? And so uh, the exile is a thing that happened. Uh, Israel is, is judged, and that is God's judgment. Um, and they also point to a future, a, a fuller uh, day of the Lord when God brings final judgment to the nations and rescues a remnant of his people. Um, and so to give us a little bit of a flavor of the language that we see in, in particularly the prophets about the day of the Lord, I'm going to read Amos five eighteen through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord... Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is a darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And Isaiah 13:9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners' From it, and so in, in these in these texts, uh, Amos we're talking to Israelites, right? And so um, there's a sense in which the Day of the Lord is going to bring judgment, and so there's a heaviness there's a heaviness to it. Um, and in the New Testament, we see a demonstration that this this ultimate Day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ, and we see references throughout the epistles. Um, 1 Corinthians one eight says, Who will sustain you, Christ? Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? So the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that now this ultimate, this true uh, day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ. So the entirety of Scripture emphasizes this doctrine. And so we, as people of the book, should also focus on pay attention to study the doctrine of the second coming uh, second point uh, general neglect oversight of this doctrine um, I think eschatology the study of the last things uh, has been contentious at various points in church history over the past 60 or 70 years there's been quite a bit of interest in um, in the end times, uh, the books like in 1970, there's a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, um, all the way through like the, uh, the uh, Left Behind series, which I remember from my childhood. There's been a lot of speculation about what the last days look like and what are the signs of the times and things of that sort. Less attention paid to the actual second coming of Christ um, and, and what that would mean for us and how we should live. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, what do the end times look like, but less thoughtful focus on what Christ's return should motivate us to and the reality of it. Um, third point is our blessed hope and a great incentive to holy living. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 12-14 says this, Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And so, therefore, you only to see a therefore. What is it? What is it? Therefore, which someone helpfully and pedantically told me once, but I do find it helpful. Um, therefore, since the end is coming, we're to be diligent in pursuit of holiness, and that God can find us without blemish when He returns. It also gives us a picture of God's glory. Um, consider what sort of majesty, breathtaking imagery, whatever large language you want to use to to imagine Christ's return. What does that mean for the king of the universe to break into this reality through the heavens in such a way that every eye is drawn? And everyone sees the return of Christ. What, I don't even have a category for that. But what I know is that in that instant, in that moment, it will be glorious. No one will be able to deny that Christ has returned. No one will be able to say, well, this isn't a big deal. But rather, everyone will see the king returning. Isaiah 2, 11 through 12 Says this, the haughty looks of a man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So I think this gives us some sense of how we are all going to marvel when Christ returns. So those are our points on why we should study the doctrine of the second coming. Does anybody have any questions on any of that? Great, moving right along. Uh, Wanted to find some common terms when referring to the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Um, The first, the apocalypse, which can be translated, it's a Greek word, can be translated as revelation or unveiling or disclosure or making fully known. And so, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that word translated as revelation is essentially a cognate for apocalypse. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek uh, because it'll be unfortunate for all of us. Um, But yeah, so that word can mean revelation or unveiling. It's a showing to us of Jesus Christ. Another word, parousia. Yet another Greek word that we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2 can be translated as presence, coming, advent of the Lord. So the Lord is going to come in his presence. He's going to arrive. Um, So that's another word used for the second coming. Epiphany, an appearing or an appearance. uh, And sometimes it's related to this idea of transcendence, of divine transcendence. Um, can also be translated as manifestation. And so epiphany, the appearing, uh, transcendent appearing of Christ, kind of carries that kind of understanding. And then finally, as we alluded to in the first section quite a bit, the day of the Lord, uh, and it's many variants. Last day, the great day, the day of wrath, day of judgment. Um, we see this in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.2 or 2 Peter 3.10. And, um, we just see this similar phrase being used in the New Testament that we see all throughout the Old Testament, but now it references Jesus Christ as the ultimate uh, fulfiller, the ultimate day of the Lord in his return. So these are just some common phrases that you're going to hear. Um, yeah, oftentimes the, the, the fancy word is just the Greek. Our next topic is the manner or nature of the second coming. So first, Christ will appear in his personal nature. He will come as Jesus made flesh. Christ's second coming will be physical, this is related to the first point. Um, He's going to come bodily. And so Acts 1, 10 through 11, tells us that essentially the way that he ascended into heaven is the way he will return. So it says this, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so here we have the idea that the way he went is the way he's going to come. So his return will be physical. Christ's second coming will be visible. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And so every eye will see him, this idea that when Christ returns, it won't be a secret, it won't be a surprise, it won't be that some people know about it and other people don't know about it, but rather every eye will see his return and recognize what is happening? Something great and mysterious and glorious. So, second, so Christ's second return will be visible. Christ's second coming will be sudden. Matthew 24, 43 tells us, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark... And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Christ's return is going to be sudden. Uh, It's going to come without warning. Uh, We're going to be shocked and amazed when it does happen. And there's some implications here uh, for the Christian. I mean, one, we want to be pursuing the things that God would have us pursue because his return could come at any time. Uh, We'll talk about this a little in the application section, um, but it's also a motivation for evangelism. We don't know when Christ is going to return, and so those conversations that we know that we need to have with unbelievers in our lives, um, we shouldn't put those off because Christ's second coming can happen in a heartbeat, in an instance. Um, And so that should motivate us to talk to people about Jesus. Christ's second coming will be glorious. We talked about this in the, in the first section in the sense of um, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ gives us a picture of God's glory. As we study it, we get this kind of mental image of what it looks like for Christ to return. But I, the reason I doubled it up is because the event itself will be glorious. So not only, is, not only is the why we study this to help us get a picture of God's glory, but the event itself will be stunning. Um, And so 1 Corinthians 15.52 gives us some language to try and process this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So a trumpet will sound. What that that means or what that sounds like, I don't know. It will be done in such a way that the world will be aware of it. The dead will be raised, again, these are things that we don't have categories for, Um, and so this event will be glorious. Things that we have never seen before will happen, Um, and I don't think we will have categories for it. Our breath will be taken away, it'll be simply stunning. I mean, trying to picture this in my own mind is, yeah, I don't really have, I have a hard time imagining what that'll be like, um, other than completely stunning, and I assume will leave me without words, so christ 's second coming will be glorious, and then finally, in this section christ 's second coming will bring an end to the Antichrist and the devil's work second thessalonians two eight tells us, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with his breath, kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, so I think for yeah I, I, obviously the devil and his his uh, followers are given a certain amount of power, power that we can't really comprehend as their spiritual principalities and authorities at the same time, when Christ returns the the battle, the fight between the devil's forces in Christ is not a battle at all. it's not a fair fight. Christ's return um, brings all of that to an end. They are defeated by a breath, a mere of Christ as he comes back. So all the power and all the authority that's ceded to the Antichrist, that's ceded to the devil um, in God's providence, all of that is instantly put to an end by Christ's uh, return. And so he is uh, obviously far more powerful and those, fo- those forces that oppose him have no ability to stop or slow or prevent his second coming, which should give us confidence in the sense of um, as we struggle through this life at some times and feel like evil is winning, whether we look at events around the world or besetting sins in our own lives or we see the destruction of sin in our friends' lives, um, we know how this ends. We know how the work of the devil ends up and it ends um, crushed under the feet of Christ. And so, Those things should give us confidence, even when it feels like, it seems like, evil is winning. Any questions on anything that we've talked about thus far? Nothing. Wow. All right. Last chance. Brett, you look like you have something. No. Okay. All right concerning the time of his second coming. So um, something that has often been uh, thought about or discussed or even predictions made is when will Christ return? Uh, There's a lot of people who have gotten themselves into a lot of trouble speculating on uh, Christ's return and when the exact timing of that will be. Our concern... Is more for holiness than it is about the times and dates. Our concern is more for holiness than it is about the times or the dates. So first John 3, 1 through 3 paints this picture for us. See what kind of love the Father has given us, given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. And so, as we study, uh, as we think about Christ's return and the timing of it, um, our goal shouldn't be to figure out the season or the time or any of that things, but rather, to use it as motivation to pursue holiness. Indeed, Scripture tells us that the specific day and time is a mystery. This is point B under, uh, under this section. Um, by, but concerning that, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angel of, angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So as I said, lots of people have embarrassed themselves trying to make predictions about Christ's return, and that they know the date that it's going to happen. I think, I mean, this has happened several times. I remember sometime in the 90s, there was one particular fellow who made a prediction that Christ was going to return, and lo and behold, it didn't happen, so he revised it to two years later, doesn't happen again, revises it to two years later, doesn't happen again, um, and so at a certain point, it becomes almost almost comical, and so scripture gives us clear instruction that we are not going to know the day and the time, and so we have to be comfortable with that mystery and trust that the Lord is sovereign in it uh, and that it will happen in his good timing. And so our focus shouldn't be trying to figure out this mystery, but rather living in light of the truth of Christ's return. Any questions on any of that? Cool. Some principles for reading verses about the second coming of Christ. First, consider the time of his return from God's vantage point. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 8-9 talks to us about how uh, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day to the Lord. Um, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the Lord is delaying his return. He's taking his time. He's being patient. Uh, and the reason he's doing so is that he desires that more people come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And time for the Lord is functionally meaningless in the sense that he is patient, eternal, everlasting. And so waiting uh, any amount of time is, is no trouble to him. Even if for us as time-bound creatures, um, it can feel like it's been... Uh, A a ridiculously long time, but that's not how it works for the Lord as he is eternal. And so his motivation for being patient is that more would come to the knowledge of Christ. And as he delays uh, the second coming of Christ, he does so, we should remember that he does so for good reason. In fact, his patience thus far uh, has allowed time for all of us to come to the saving knowledge of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Second, recognize the last times or the last days includes the time between his first coming and his second coming. So as we think about um, Scripture that talks about the signs and the times and things that will happen uh, before Christ returns, um, that includes the span of, Christ's, of of essentially Christ's ascension into heaven and up until now. So we're, at this point, we're coming up on 2,000 and some odd years um, and so there's a lot of ways in which, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of time there. Um, and so as we consider what scripture has to say about wars and coming wars and, and things of that nature, um, this can be true throughout that entire time, time period, even as it may be especially true the closer we get to Christ's return. Um, next point is prophetic foreshortening, which is a phrase I did not know until this week. Uh, thank you to Ben Robin for patiently explaining it to me. Um, The four examples uh, that we have here are Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. These four chapters in the Gospels are referring to Christ's prophecy about the destruction of the temple um, in addition to some other things. And so uh, the idea of prophetic foreshortening, as as I understand it, um, is this idea that Christ is making, so in these particular chapters, Christ is making a prophecy about the destruction of the Jewish temple, which does come true around 70 AD. Um, the Romans uh, essentially burned it to the ground. And so in that sense, that prophecy uh, comes true in that. At the same time, there seems to be a sense in which that prophecy will also be true uh, as as Christ is going to come back. So when it talks about, um, in Luke, I'll I'll focus on the Luke uh, narrative in particular, Christ gives three commands to his people. Do not be deceived, do not follow them, false messiahs, and do not be frightened. So in this time period, in the first century, there are lots of false messiahs that appear, uh, stirring up rebellion against the Roman Empire, both shortly before Christ's arrival and after uh, there's also several wars, rebellion against uh, the Roman Empire, um, conflicts all over the place. There's rebels that are put to death. This is happening quite a bit in the first century. And then as we talked about, the, the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. And so Christ's warnings, his prophecy is true in the near term, um, in, you know, within 40 years of his own crucifixion. But Christ's prophecy will also be true in the last days before his return. Um, What exactly this looks like, I don't think I can say until those days come, but wars, rumors of wars, terrors, these things will happen. Um, There does seem to be a a sense in which this will be especially true as Christ's second coming uh, inches closer, but it's also true in the sense of Christ's prophecy concerning the first century. And so Luke 21:25 to 28 says this, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Any questions on any of that, Joey? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's where the, the first point from this section, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, is really helpful. Um, the reason he's waiting is that more people come to the knowledge of Christ. He wants, he, the Lord desires that all would come to a saving, a repentance and a saving faith in Christ. And so that patience, that forbearance um, is really motivated by a love uh, for his people. Um, and so I think yeah, and I think the, the idea that um, time is no obstacle to the Lord. So what feels like a really long time to us is not a long time to God. So for me, I think how I understand, like, well, goodness, it's been, you know, 2,000 some odd years. What, what's, what's going on? I just think I need to remind myself um, the reason that weight is there, that, that gap is because the Lord wants to see more people come to Christ, um, and that's in His His good, His love and kindness towards His people. So I think that kind of helps me say, okay, like there's a really good reason why there's been um, such a long wait. Is that helpful? Yeah. Other questions on any of this? Jason Seville. I think, insofar as it goes, the impulse to uh, bring the gospel to people who haven't heard it before uh, so that the Lord may uh, save some is, is, is great. That, that's fine. I think the idea that we have some kind of agency over the Lord's return um, is mistaken. Um, and so I think it's interesting, like, over the past 40 years, that's in missions, that's something I've you know That's language I've heard, is we need to share the gospel all over so that Christ can return. But there's been, like I think, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but billions of dollars have spent, and we have technology like we've never had before, and yet, despite all these resources, not everyone has heard the, heard the gospel. So there's this, what I'm getting at is even though, even in all of our modern strength and whatever, um, we still haven't been able to reach every person on the earth with the gospel. We can send somebody to the moon, but we can't do that, which kind of just reminds me that, um, yeah, the Lord is in control of when the gospel is going to get to his people. Um, so I think that that idea that we can hasten the coming of the Lord is, is mistaken and given human beings um, probably too much credit. Uh, the Lord, only the Lord knows when he's going to return. Um, but the idea that we should, you know, we're going to get this, get to this in the next section, but one of the signs uh, that the the second coming is nearing is that all the Gentiles will hear the gospel. So there is a sense in which we are commanded to bring the gospel to everyone who hasn't heard it and that that is a thing that will happen uh, before Christ returns. So in that sense, I think it if it's like we, you know, if we... Accept that we have no control over this, and yet we still want to uh, fulfill the mandate that God has given us uh, and pursue missions in, in that kind of humble sense. I think that that could be fine. It just really is a distinction between we're calling the shots or God's calling the shots. Like uh, you know, that's obviously when you put it in a crass way like that, it's obviously what the answer is. But there is a there is some some truth to that. We have to be humbly pursuing um what the Lord would have us pursue, not not thinking that we can put him under yeah, put him in debt to us or or have any impact on what he's gonna do. Yeah. Um how, are, how should we think about categorizing all the Gentiles? Just because so say there's this I reached some place that uh forty years ago there was a Christian missionary there, but now there's no to know that. Oh that's interesting. So, That's interesting. It's not a question I had considered. Let me think about it. Right. We wouldn't think of them as Gentiles we would think of people Yeah. So the, the example let me see this, this tracks so what you're asking. The example that comes to mind for me is is Burma. So Adam Iram Judson went there uh in the eighteen hundreds. Um, famously, took seven years to get his first convert, and then, um, because largely because of his work and his Bible translation, thousands of the Burmese people—I guess it's now Myanmar—came um, to Christ. At, t- to such a degree that the the country with the th- third largest amount of Baptists was was Burma. So this is, but today, um, and somewhat famously, they kind of built a monument to. Where he lived and was imprisoned, and, and today all that stuff has been essentially um, grown over with like grass, and like there's just there's no there's no physical memory of these memorials they had to this guy, uh, as I understand it, uh, the Christian presence uh, in that country now is extraordinarily slim and perhaps um, almost nothing, uh, and so do we now consider that those people that country as unreached. Is that kind of your question? Like they were reached and now they're not. But especially uh, I am just trying to think how we think about the uh 'cause in like Matthew twenty four the Jesus talking about like all of the gospel go forth to all the Gentiles and then the, and the, and the, and the and
2: I think some people kinda of put too much emphasis on that of like, oh
3: if we go to this country then the Lord's gonna come. Uh, oh yeah. Know. So I'm just thinking kind of how that. Yeah, that's fair. I mean I think I think, um, yeah, Gentiles here. I, I, I haven't done a deep study of that passage, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I think it would have to reference anybody who is um, outside of the people of God at that point. So that is everybody, both people groups and individuals down the street who have never heard the gospel. So yeah, I think as as far as motivation for missions or evangelism um, we should be thinking not just about you know the ethnic group in um, the middle of the jungle somewhere that hasn't been reached but also our neighbor who's never heard the the scriptures either so yeah I think that's a fair corrective no no I'm always happy to be corrected (laughs) it's totally fine any other questions on this Awesome. All right, signs of the second coming of Christ. Scripture is definite about the things that must happen before Christ comes. We just talked about this, the calling of the Gentiles. The gospel must be preached to all the Gentiles. So we see this in Matthew 24, 14, Mark 13, 10. So there is is a reality that um, the gospel will have to be shared across the entire globe before uh, Christ returns um, that has not happened yet as I understand it in fact I don't know if we will know <laughs> when that happens because um, it's it, it is a tough thing it's a tough thing to track um, also the gathering of all of Israel Romans eleven twenty five through 32 says this lest you be wise in your own sight They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Um, This passage is... The subject of quite a bit of debate, um, quite a bit of an analysis. Um, I think what we can rightfully uh, pull here is that it does seem that at some point there will be some ingathering of the Jewish people. Um, now, what that looks like, or what percentage that will be, uh, I cannot say. Um, but I think there will. Be, that is one of the signs of, of the times of, of Christ's second second coming. Um, so again there's a bit of to me at least there's a bit of mystery here um, it is what, what this will look like in the end we don't, I don't know but um, there will be some kind of gathering in of Israel so, uh, next sign of the times the apostasy uh, which can be translated as falling away rebellion will happen uh, and relatedly the next point the antichrist the man of sin will be revealed and so this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. Uh, I will read it quickly. Actually, this is where I'll ask somebody else to read it. Would somebody like to read 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4? Instead of me flipping through pages. Joey, go ahead. So, uh, oh, go. You still going? Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, the Antichrist will appear, um, and there will be some broad rebellion against God uh, that has to happen before Christ's return. Again, specifics of what that looks like, matter of some debate, but these things will happen before Christ's second coming. Any questions on the signs of the second coming of Christ? Awesome. Uh, point. Uh, our next our next section here is apocalyptic scriptures and their interpretation. So the apocalyptic scriptures are the books of Daniel and Revelation. Um, there are three views here, um, and helpfully, we've just been in a long. We have spent a lot of time in Revelation um, with uh, Garrett's been preaching through that over essentially the past year. So. Um, there's definitely a flavor of how to walk through the book of Revelation there. Uh, if, you, if, you have a, if you want to get deeper into how to look at Revelation, I highly recommend listening to those sermons. It's been extraordinarily helpful to me. Um, that being said, there are three views uh, by which people look at these apocalyptic scriptures. The first is the preterist view or preterism. Um, and this is the idea that the bulk of these prophecies have already happened. So Revelation is largely referring to events of the first century. Babylon is the Roman Empire. Um, Daniel's referring to uh, kingdoms um, that were close to his time, whether it's the Greeks or Babylonians or Persians. Um, so the bulk of these prophecies have already happened. The historicist view is this, a system of interpretation that understands Revelation as setting forth the major events of Christian history spanning the time of John until the present, so that is a long-winded way of saying these events are unfolding through history. So, from the first century all the way through now, it's constantly being unfolded as history progresses. And finally, the futurist view: most of the prophecies have yet to come—the uh, tribulation, millennium, all sorts of these things. These prophecies, the bulk of them, have yet to arrive. So, those are the kind of the three basic views on how to look at apocalyptic scripture. Any questions on any of that? Yeah? That's a good question. Ben Robin, do you have an answer to that question?
2: Awesome. So four through five describes the same events as six through eight. I'm not sure if the chapter breakdowns, but you get my point. Like we're seeing a different vantage point if you remember that analogy from one of servants on the same events, which is first coming, second coming. And it's,
3: it's just more cycles. Yeah. So to restate um, what Ben just said helpfully is that uh, Garrett's been taking an idealist approach, which doesn't see things as happening primarily in the past. Or primarily in the future, or a linear unfolding throughout history, but rather cycles that repeat themselves again and again. Kind of um yeah. That a, you have just said that. I know, but I I wanted to make. Well, the funny thing is, is this is a total aside. I looked at that book, and they they use kind of different names for the four things, and is is what I saw in other places. So I was like, ah, uh, I just wanted. To, I knew that you would be more precise, so I wanted to make sure that we were we were precise. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Nathan. Um, this isn't... The one I thought of while preparing this week that's not, it's not perfect, so I'm happy to be corrected by Jason or Ben. Um, but so the, the idea of typology, like this idea of like the day of the Lord, for instance. Um, the day of the Lord, like in the Babylonian captivity, that is the day of the Lord. Judgment has come to Israel. They're going into exile. So that is a type, that is a thing that we have seen but we will see it again in, a f- in fullness, in its ultimate form in the second coming of Christ. That's judgment, not just for Israel, not just for foreign nations, but for everybody. Um, and so, in that sense, like we see this pattern again and again of, you know, you know rebellion, um, Lord brings judgment, a remnant is saved. You see that all throughout Israel's history, and so this is kind of a, a typology that we'll see again. So that's So when I'm thinking of, like, the day of the Lord, that's kind of a cycle that we see again and again, and we'll see it in its fullness um, when Christ returns again. The other thing, uh, the other typology that I thought of where we see kind of similar things as a pattern through Scripture is, you know, we see the flood in Noah's day as God's judgment bringing an end to almost the entirety of the world. And then in 2 Peter, we see that this was a type of judgment and that the final judgment will not come with water, but with fire, but yet it's also a type, like the, the flood was a type of God's judgment on the world, and the end, the final judgment with fire will be this ultimate type of God's judgment um, on the world. So this is, those are the things that I thought of as how we see like kind of cycles and patterns again and again through, through scripture. Except in a futurist interpretation, you can tell me if this is wrong, but this is how this. In a futurist interpretation,
2: Revelation four through nineteen, roughly, I realized twelve exceptions an for example, would be future. So so, you know, the seven years leading up to a thousand years, like
3: Yeah, so I'm not going to try to recap that. (laughs) It's a good answer. Um, Last section before we wrap here. Application. How to study the doctrine of the second coming of Christ and live in light of it. Um, First, we want to study this doctrine with right motives and to push ourselves towards holiness. We referenced this before, but it's 1 John 3.3. So we want to... Think of the end, the the second coming of Christ, not as a mystery to be solved or an intellectual exercise or a math problem, but rather a reality that is set in stone. The end has been written, it is going to happen. How does that impact us? How how then should we live knowing that Christ is coming again? And so in that sense, it should motivate us to pursue the things that God would have us pursue. Second, we wanna live with joyful longing for his appearing. So we, want to, we, we yearn for this day. Christians should look forward to it. It is um, in Reve- Revelation 21 sense. This is the end. This will put an end to evil. It will bring perfect justice, perfect peace. Um, the dwelling place of God will be with man. And he will, they will, he will be their God and they will be his people. Um, this beautiful picture of what it will be like for God's people to live with him forever uh, is coming, and so we should we should long for that. And so in an eternal sense, Christians should be um, optimists. We know, no matter what, no matter how bad it gets, uh, in this life, no matter what we endure, Christ is going to rescue us. He's going to set things right. And this should free us to glorify Him, Him. Um, rightfully understood, it can help free us from anxiety or fear, or worry about our circumstances, uh, because again, the end has been written. It is a bedrock truth, and Christ will come back to save his people. He will come back to gather all of us to him, whether we have died or are still living at that time. Um, The flip side of this is for the unbeliever in the sense of the second coming of Christ is not good news for those who don't know Jesus. Um, the language that we see of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and the New Testament um, as God's wrath going to be poured out on his enemies. Um, this is a serious thing. Um, and as Christians, we should strive to share the gospel, the knowledge that um, those people can be saved from their sins by belief in Christ and repentance. From, the, from those sins and a pursuit of Christ through their lives. And so uh, we should remember while the second coming of Christ is a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing, thing that we should joyfully long for as Christians, it is a truly horrifying, utterly terrifying, um, world-ending reality for people who don't know uh, Christ. And so that should motivate the believer to evangelism. We should share the message of salvation to as many as we can. Uh, Finally, we should make a good use of the time. Uh, This day is coming. We don't know when. As we said, it's going to come suddenly. It could come in the next breath, the next hour, the next day, month. It could come at any time. And so let's not waste the time that the Lord has given us to steward well. This means living wisely, living for Christ And pursuing the good works that He has set out for us to do, Um, there's nothing in this world that can steal us from Christ's grip. So there's nothing to fear in pursuing glory, glorifying God. And so those are the things that we should be living for. The end frees us to live now in a way that glorifies Jesus without fear. And with that, I'll ask if there's any final questions. On anything. Awesome. Again, guys, sorry I was late. Uh, Yeah, I was like having my cup of coffee, was feeling totally relaxed. Oh, I'll get there super. I'll get there 10, 15 minutes early. And then Ben Robin called me and said, you're late. So again, I'm sorry. Uh, But the Lord is merciful. And so I will pray uh, and we can continue on in our day. Lord, we praise you uh, for your rescue, and we look forward to your final rescue of your people. We long for the day that Christ comes back and judges everyone and gathers his people to him. We long for that day. We look forward to uh, Jesus setting everything right and seeing his glory in the flesh. And so we ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit live in light of that reality that we would seek to glorify you and live wisely in the time that you've given us. Pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen.